Section 8 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. The Detection of Crime, Part 3 Then I began with a real experiment. I told him that I should call at first fifty words, and each time when he heard a word, he was to name to me as quickly as possible the first thing which came to his mind on the hearing of the word. I asked him not to choose the words intentionally, but to let them go without any reflection. I added that I should learn all from the ideas which he would bring up. My first word was river. He associated water, then ox, he said, yoke. Mountain, he said, hill. Tobacco, he said, pipe. All the interest thus seemed to belong to the choice of the words, and he saw that I wrote his answers down. But the fact is that I did something else also. I measured in fractions of a second the time between my calling the word and his giving a reply, between his hearing of the word river and his speaking the word water, eight-tenths of a second passed, between ox, yoke, six-tenths, between tobacco, pipe, eight-tenths. On the whole, seven to eight-tenths of a second was the very short standard time for those associations which represented familiar ideas. Now, there were mixed in among the fifty words, many which had direct relation to his criminal career, and to his professed religious conversion. For instance, the words confession, revolver, religion, heaven, jury, death, Bible, pardon, railroad, blood, jail, prayer, and some names of his victims, and of his alleged accomplices. Let us not forget that he was fully under the belief that I had a special power to discover from his spoken words the real tendencies of his mind. If he had anything to hide, he would have been constantly on the lookout that no treacherous word should slip in. If a word like confession or something similar were called among harmless ones, he would never shout at once the first word which came to his mind but would have watched that no dangerous secret, perhaps confession, humbug came out and betrayed him. He would have quickly suppressed the word before it was spoken, and yet, however quickly he might have done it, it would have taken at least one or two seconds more, and he would have used the longer time the more freely, as he had no reason to suspect that time played any part in the experiment. But the results show the very remarkable fact that the dangerous words brought, on the whole, no retardation of the associative process. After tobacco, pipe, came with the same promptness, confession, truth, again in eight-tenths of a second, a time entirely insufficient for any inner deliberation, or sanction, or choice, or correction. It is a time which just allows the speaking of the first idea which arises in the mind. Heaven, God, took again 
less than a second. And so religion, truth, blood, knife, governor, executive, witness, stand, minister, pulpit, mine owner, mine, only pardon, peace, death, end, and similar more abstract words took about one and a half seconds, a time which is still too short for real inhibition and second thought. Even the names of his accomplices and of his victims awoke associations in less than nine-tenths of a second. The fact that these associations were produced by the witness in the minimum time, which made deliberation impossible, while he was convinced that the words would unveil his real mind, is strong evidence, indeed, that this man did not want consciously to hide anything, and that he himself really believed his confession. If these experiments had been made with him before his confession, he would have stumbled over every third word, and many of his associations would have taken three seconds or more. He would have been unable, in spite of best efforts, to overcome the fear of betraying himself, and this fear would have retarded the associations in a way which would have trapped him unmistakably. But not only the short time, the choice of the associations also indicated clearly that, in an almost incredible manner, a mild, indifferent serenity had taken hold of his mind, and that his criminal life was of no concern to him any more. I gave him, for instance, the name of a city in which, according to his confession, he had been last to poison a victim and to dynamite his house. But in his mind, the place did not connect itself any more with murder. In less than a second, his mind joined it with ocean. It is evident from the association times that no real emotion accompanied any of his memories of crime. He did not have, and did not simulate, a bad conscience. The emotional retardation of suspicious associations, characteristic of the average criminal, was, as expected, entirely lacking in this wholesale murderer. That does not mean that he lacks feeling. My experiments show the opposite. To be sure, his sensitiveness for pain was, as with most criminals, much below the average. A deep pinprick did not produce any reaction, and his whole touch sense was obtuse, while his eyes and ears were very sharp. But, in spite of this lack of organic pain, he has never been ill. He is sensitive to the immediate perception of suffering in others. Simulation is excluded. I measure the involuntary reactions. He really shivers at the thought of hurting others. I have no reason for doubting that he had this mental sensitiveness always, and that is no contradiction to the fact that he was spreading pain all around. Nearly all his crimes were performed in an impersonal way. He did not see the victims. He manufactured infernal machines, laid dynamite in the mines and bombs under gates, and thought of the suffering of the victims as little as the manufacturer of children's toys may think of the happiness of the little ones. He assured me that in those fifteen years of heinous deeds, he never struck anyone personally with his fist. That would have gone against his nerves. He exhibited tender feeling in all direction. He selected, for instance, very delicate color combinations, 
as those which he liked best among many which I showed him. His favorite color seemed to be dark blue. Any showy or loud dressing is disagreeable to him. He asserts, even, that he rarely drank any strong drinks. One glass of beer made him sleepy. Yet his emotional life is simply dead. The small figures of his association times would otherwise be quite impossible. And it may be added that even if his religious conversion is genuine, his so-called religion lacks also every sound and deep feeling. It is thoroughly utilitarian. He serves God because he will reward him after death. The association experiments thus completely fulfilled their purpose. They gave a definite reply to a definite question, which could hardly be answered by other methods of evidence. The association experiments proved that the murderer did not try to hide anything. Of course, this was only the first problem to be solved in the case. From this state of subjective truthfulness, which interests the psychologist to the proof of objective truth, which interests the court, is still a very long way. It would have been possible, for instance, that all this was pseudo-religious auto-suggestion, or that it was a systemic illusion brought forth by the suggestions of detectives and lawyers, or that the witness was hypnotized, or that his mind was diseased. The experimental inquiry had to study all those and other possibilities. They form the chief part of my experiments, but they do not belong here, as they have no relation to the method of association measurement, which was the only concern of this discussion. Of course, the theoretical importance of the method is independent of the practical importance of the cases in which it is applied. Multi-murderers are rare, but the simplest case of wrongdoing may demonstrate the success of the method just as well. No sharper contrast could be possible than that between the brutal criminal with his dynamite bombs and the lovely little girl with her chocolate bonbons, whom I had seen a short time before. She was anemic and norasthenic, and could not concentrate her attention on her work for her college examinations. She came to me for psychological advice. I asked her many questions as to her habits of life. Among other things, she assured me that she took wholesome and plentiful meals and was not allowed to buy sweets. Then I began some psychological experiments, and among other tests, I started at first rather aimlessly, with trivial associations. Her average association time was slow, nearly two seconds. Very soon the word money brought the answer candy, and it came with the quickness of 1.4 seconds. There is nothing remarkable in this, but the next word, apron, harmless in itself, was six seconds in finding its association. And furthermore, the association which resulted was apron, chocolate. Both the retardation and the inappropriateness of this indicated that the foregoing pair had left an emotional shock, and the choice of the word chocolate showed that the disturbance resulted from the intrusion of the word candy. The word apron had evidently no power at all compared with those associations which were produced by the candy emotion. I took this as a clue, and after twenty indifferent words, which slowly restored her calmness of mind, I returned to the problem of sweets.
Of course, she was now warned, and was evidently on the lookout. The result was that when I threw in the word candy again, she needed 4.5 seconds, and the outcome was the naive association, never. This never was the first association that was neither substantive nor adjective. All the words before had evidently meant for her simply objects, but candy seemed to appeal to her as a hint, a question, a reproach, which she wanted to repudiate. She was clearly not aware that this mental change from a descriptive to a replying attitude was very suspicious. She must even have felt quite satisfied with her reply, for the next associations were short and to the point. After a while I began on the same line again. The unsuspicious word box brought quickly the equally unsuspicious white, and yet I knew at once that it was a candy box. For the next word, pound, brought the association to, and the following, book. After several seconds, the unfit association, sweet. She was again not aware that she had betrayed the path of her imagination. In the course of three hundred associations, I varied the subject repeatedly, and she remained to the end unconscious that she had given me all the information needed. Her surprise seemed still greater than her feeling of shame, and I told her that she skipped her luncheons daily, and had hardly any regular meals, but consumed every day several pounds of candy. With tears she made finally a full confession. She had kept her injudicious diet a secret, as she had promised her parents not to spend any money for chocolate. The right diagnosis led me to make the right suggestions, and after a few weeks her health and strength were restored. This trivial case with its foolish offense shows how psychological detective work may also be useful outside of the sphere of law. It not seldom becomes the serious interest of the educator and the physician to disentangle hidden thoughts, and the third degree of the school and of the consultation room may easily be replaced by association experiments. On such a basis, the nerve specialist would frequently be able to make the right and helpful diagnosis without the aid of any confession and without awakening in the patient the slightest suspicion that his physician had discovered his real source of the trouble. Experiments have convinced me that the method may bring to light facts of which even the patient himself is ignorant, ideas which are connected in his deepest soul, but which he cannot bring up voluntarily by mere effort of memory, are sometimes brought to expression by the mechanical devices of this association method. It seems that as soon as a number of associations have been produced under pressure of the desire to associate as quickly as possible, the mind enters into a state of decreased inhibition in which suppressed and forgotten ideas rush forward. This fact must become the more important, the more we learn under the guidance of the Vienna School, that one of the most troublesome nervous diseases, namely hysteria, results principally from suppressed affective ideas, and can be cured by awakening anew the restrained thought. Hysteria is strangulated emotion, and disappears when the forgotten emotional ideas are brought to conscious expression. One hysteric woman always became mute after sunset. 
Another could not take any food but liquids. Another was constantly tortured by the hallucination of the tobacco odor. Every physician knows a hundred such hysteric symptoms. No one of these patients knew the reason or origin of her trouble. Slowly the physician discovered the suppressed ideas, which had had no chance to express themselves, and had worked disaster in their inhibited form. The woman who could not speak at night had sat once at sunset years before at the bedside of her sick father. She had vehemently suppressed every sound in order not to disturb him. As soon as this first scene was brought back to her mind, she regained her voice. The woman who could not take solid food had been obliged, years before, to suppress her disgust when eating at the same table with a man who suffered from an ugly disease. As soon as the starting point was consciously associated again, she was ready to dine like others. The woman who smelled tobacco had long before heard, by chance, in a room full of smoke, that the man she loved was in love with another, and she had had to suppress her emotion on account of the presence of others. As soon as she connected the smell again in consciousness with that first strangulated emotion, the hallucination disappeared. Hysteric contractions and anesthesias, pathological impulses, and inhibitions can all be removed if the long-forgotten emotional ideas with which the disturbance started can be brought to light. Just here the association method seems sometimes helpful. The psychologist who seeks to discover the secret connections of ideas may thus, by his association method, not only protect the innocent and unmask the guilty, but bring health and strength to the nervous wreck. Yet our chief interest belongs to the legal aspect of this method, carried out with the skill which only long laboratory training can give. It has become, indeed, a magnifying glass for the most subtle mental mechanism, and by it the secrets of the criminal mind may be unveiled. All this has, of course, no legal standing today, and there is probably no one who desires to increase the number of experts in our criminal courts. But justice demands that truth and lies be disentangled. The time will come when the methods of experimental psychology cannot longer be excluded from the court of law. It is well known that the use of stenographers in trials once met with vehement opposition, while now the shorthand record of the court procedure seems a matter of course. The help of the psychologist will become not less indispensable the vulgar ordeals of the third degree, in every form, belong to the Middle Ages, and much of the wrangling of attorneys about technicalities in admitting the evidence appears to not a few somewhat out of date, too. The methods of experimental psychology are working in the spirit of the 20th century. The third degree may brutalize the mind and force either correct or falsified secrets to light. The time measurement of associations is swifter and cleaner, more scientific, more humane, and more reliable in bringing out the truth which justice demands. Of course, we are only at the beginning of its development. The new method is still in many ways imperfect, and if clumsily applied, it may be misleading. Moreover, there exists no hard and fast rule 
which fits every case mechanically. But all this indicates only that, just as the bodily facts have to be examined by the chemist or the psychologist, the mental facts must be examined also, not by the layman, but by the scientific psychologist with the training of a psychological laboratory. End of Section 8 Read by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida